Good evening, friends and brethren. It's good to see you tonight. It's good to see a good number, seeing the members from the church here, but as well, a good number of visitors and some who have driven a long way. And I want you to know that you are an encouragement to the church here, being here, and you are really an encouragement to me as well. We have some who have come from an hour from the north and some who have come from an hour from the south to come to the meeting. And uh, that is, I know that's an encouragement to everyone here, but it's an encouragement to me. And I'm just really glad that you are here tonight. I want to take our Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. There's a text found here that is familiar to most. We're going to spend a little time in this text here tonight. And I want to tell you that this is a lesson that I, I think starts kind of slow. I want you to stay with me. There's some things I want to talk about, some things I want to cover that's going to help us, I hope, will help us to understand this text in a, in a, in a better way, in a broader way. This text records a message from Jesus to some of his closest disciples. And we need to know and understand and have a picture here who's involved. We know Jesus is. And we know that it's some of his apostles that are there. Let's understand that it was the winter before the death of Jesus. And so his time is starting to draw short. And he has some things to share with his closest disciples that are very important. And he's sharing more with them now. And he's going to come to a point, not in this text, but in others, where he's, he's realizing that his days are coming to an end. And he wants his disciples to understand that, that his days on earth are coming, are coming to an end. They had a hard time understanding that. In fact, they didn't want to understand or accept that. But it was true. It was coming, and it had to happen. Jesus knew that. They didn't know so much about that. And so Jesus brought some of his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And it was there that he confirmed to him that he was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah, foretold important things to them concerning his church. And some things that even to this day, I wonder, did they understand the significance of what he was saying just then? Well, I think they would understand it more as time went on. But I wonder how well they understood these points right then. We're looking at the text, Matthew chapter 16. We begin at verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I wonder what they thought when they heard these words. When Jesus proclaimed these things to them, I wonder how it hit them, what they were thinking about when Jesus said these things. It's a very authoritative passage when you think about it. 
a passage from which many gospel sermons have been preached. And it's a message from Jesus to his, his disciples that I will just tell you is powerful enough to stand on its own and doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. Little commentary is needed. And we cannot make what Jesus said any more authoritative than what it is. But so there's some different conclusions that people hold as to what Jesus is referring to or, or what it means. But when you consider carefully the context, it will help us to understand a clearer meaning of the message. And in this case, it might be helpful for us to understand something about the place where they were standing. Now we said Caesarea Philippi. The scene in the Bible story is found about 30 miles or so north of the Sea of Galilee. Let's start with a map just a little bit. And we recognize some places on the map so familiar to us, you know, like, you know, Jerusalem. Our Lord spent a, a good amount of time in Jerusalem, was in and out of the city at different times. But a lot of his time was spent up here north in the Sea of Galilee in that area on the north side. He spent a lot of time there. Capernaum was his home, his, like his second home. He spent much time there. And some of the cities that you see in that, in that area, uh, Magdala and Capernaum and Bethsaida. But there's a place a little farther north of there, Caesarea Philippi. I only know of one time in Scripture that it says anything about Caesarea Philippi, not to be confused with Caesarea Maritime, the Caesarea that's over on the Mediterranean Sea, another place talked about in other times. But Caesarea Philippi is only mentioned one time in the Bible. Now, it's in Mark's account too, but it's the same, it's the same episode that's being talked about in, in that account. Now, we don't know if Jesus actually entered into the, the city of Caesarea Philippi, but he was there in that area. And from what I can tell from archaeology and such as that, you know, it was a fair-sized city, but it seems like some of the events that I want to talk about were probably in that city center. And yet, as we look here at the map again, go a little farther up, we're looking at the Sea of Galilee, and we come on up to this region where Caesarea Philippi is at. Well, there's some ancient cities there that we read about in the Old Testament, like the city of Dan. And, 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 but now in the New Testament, we're talking about a newer city, Caesarea Philippi. It was kind of on, in the shadow of Mount Hermon is the area that it's in. And we'll talk about that some more here as we look on. You know, there's not really a lot in Scripture that mentions this area. Oh, but, but there are some places where it's recorded. But there's enough there that we know about it. I mean, it was an area that was, well, actually, it was, it was quite beautiful. It was a very fertile area, and it was rich in those ways. And so long before Caesarea Philippi in the first century, it's an area that was full of Baal worship. I mean, for centuries, for generations, it was, it was that way. In the early record of the children of Israel, there's a record that, that worship took place there, not to Jehovah God, but to the Baals of that day, idols, false gods. It's only about four miles away from Dan, and that's where the first king of Israel set up idols there. Remember the golden calf, and they worshiped there. The children of Israel um, worshiped there. Perhaps this site was chosen for such worship by Jeroboam and by those before because it was an impressive location. At the foot of Mount Hermon, which you can see in the background here with the snow on top, you can see it's a beautiful area. It's like this today. 
It's a beautiful area, and it's very fertile. And as I said, for, for generations, Baal worship took place there. In the Old Testament, there's some mention of that. Not Caesarea Philippi. That was a new name that came about around the first century. But in the Old Testament, there are some passages that give us some indication of the worship that took place there. Joshua, when they were conquering the land, it says in Joshua chapter 11, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. It's this area. It's this area that he's talking about. Baal Gad, as it was called. And then there's another occasion where, namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, Sidonians, and the Hivites, who dwell in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. See, it's all that same area. And there's some other occasions in Scripture, too, where it identifies this area, and it's always connected to Baal worship. Well, that was the case for many years. It was that way. People knew of this area as an area where Baals were worshipped, where all these different gods were, were worshipped. Now, during that period of time, Baal Hermon and Baal Gad in the Old Testament period was later named Panias. The name changed. Panias. And that's after the Greek god Pan, the god of fright. And so Caesarea Philippi, the city that we know about from the New Testament time and where Jesus was at in the reading of Mark, or Matthew chapter 16 uh, was there in, in that area of Panias. Caesarea Philippi was the location of the Cave of Pan, the place where pagan, the pagan gates of Hades, as they called it. Well, today, today the name has changed again. You can go to that same site today, and it's called Banias. Just to make sure we're confused, it's had several names throughout history. But Banias today, well, there's an Israeli national park there, and thousands of people visit that historic site every year. Go back to the first century, though. In the first century, there was a city there. It was called Caesarea Philippi. And it was situa situated on the southern slope of Mount Hermon, and Caesarea Philippi is the location of one of the largest springs feeding the Jordan River. There are three springs in that area that make up the headwaters of the Jordan River. Well, we know a lot about the Jordan River as it comes on down in, into the Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. We can read about that in, in numerous places in, in Scripture. Well, this is where it starts. There has to be headwaters for a river somewhere, and this is where it starts. And this spring, Banias Springs, is one of the larger springs that feeds into the, the Jordan River. And so it just tells us something again about the, about the uh, uh, abundance of water in the area, the fertile ground, and that's why it was so lush then. And even today, if you travel into that area of Israel, it's a beautiful area. It's lush and green, and there are large farms there. And so we can understand why it was an interesting place. It was a desired place for people to go even way back in the history of man and why it was a preferred place for their worship of gods. They wanted to set up their idols in a place that was nice and pretty for their gods long ago.
There were numerous temples set up in that area, built around the city in the Hellenistic or the Greek and the Roman periods. And so there are remnants of a number of temples throughout that area. In the first century, or even in, even in time slightly before, then Caesarea Philippi served as an administrative center for government for Philip the Tetrarch during Jesus' time. And the city was built around, as it was called then, Panius Spring, which is called Banius today. And the spring was named for that Greek god, Pan. It was late in the, the first century B.C., before Christ, that Herod the Great acquired that land throughout the region, and he constructed a huge temple there. It was later in the 3rd and 3 A.D. that Philip the Tetrarch founded the city of Panius there. And there were some large temples built there in honor of Pan into that rocky, into that rocky ridge of Mount Hermon. This all becomes part of the Bible story. It's interesting just to think about and to know some of the events that were happening that have gone on through centuries and where some things are at in the days of the first century when Jesus and his disciples come into Caesarea Philippi. Herod Philip enlarged the city and he is the one who named it Caesarea Philippi. There are a number of cities. I, I tried counting up one time throughout the, old, the Bible lands. There's about 12 cities uh, uh, throughout the region that start with Caesarea. Most of them are ones we don't know anything about. They're not recorded in Scripture. But you know why? They were called Caesarea. It was the governor of the area trying to give, trying to give some credit, you know, to the Caesar. Caesarea Philippi was named in honor of the emperor Caesar Augustus. And then Philip tagged his own name on there too and called it Caesarea Philippi. And that's where the name came from. You know, a point of focus for Baal worship took place right there in Caesarea Philippi. It was the worship of Pan. Pan was the god of fright. Kind of where we come up with the name Panic. Pan was the god of fright. Panic. We understand panic, don't we? The name, the word. And the spring there that emerged from the large cave was the center of pagan worship. I mean, even today, you can see there, there's still a spring where water comes out, but it doesn't come out of the cave anymore. That all kind of got filled in over time. It just comes out of the ground just below the cave. But you can think about and you can imagine the day as it was in the first century where this water all came out of that cave. And that becomes sort of important to the Bible story in understanding the events that took place there. Pan was an interesting character, can we say? Well, he was just a Greek god. He's a make-believe figure, I think. If we can think that of all these different Greek gods... I mean, they really weren't really for real. You know, Pan was that half man, half goat. Perhaps you've seen some depiction of Pan. Goats were offered as a sacrifice to Pan. And it happened right here at this cave, right at the waters that came out, because it was there that the temple was built. The, the, there was a temple built. This, this temple of Pan was built right into the face of this cave. 
And the water that came out of that cave was something that was just amazing to the people of the time because it was an abundant amount of water that came out. And it is said that, that there was just, just a, a huge hole inside of the cave and the water was deeper than man could figure. It was, it was a very deep hole right there. And so they offered sacrifices right there to the god Pan. They'd offer goats. And if the goat sunk in the water, it meant that Pan had accepted the sacrifice. But if the goat came back out, it was rejected by Pan. And it meant that the sacrifice was not great enough. And so they had to come back with another sacrifice. Can you imagine what they offered? Children, infants, small babies. That's what they offered to Pan at that point. Right there in that cave where the water was coming out and flowing through the temple of Pan. Well, what does this have to do with Matthew chapter 16? There's a connection we can make. I'll explain a personal experience of a few years ago. When I was there and we walked around that stream and up to the rock ridge where the temples once were. And when we got there, we read from Matthew chapter 16, the account that we've just read here tonight. And all of a sudden, some things started clicking to me in a different way. Now, I want to say and I want to emphasize again. The Bible stands on its own. God's word stands on its, on its own. You don't have to go to the Bible lands to understand the Bible. But there's some things that I started to see a little bit differently standing there around the foundations of the temples that were built to, God, to this God called Pan. Built there in the rock and the ruins of these temples that were there. It was the location of a great revelation from Jesus to his disciples that we just read. Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus was standing when he said these things to Peter and to the others that were there with him, but we know he was somewhere there in that area. That's where Caesarea Philippi was. The ruins are found there. And I could not help but to think about the message that he shared with those disciples and what it meant to them at that moment, at that time. It was there that he chose to reveal to his disciples that he was the Messiah. It was there in that place that he spoke, not only, he spoke about establishing and building his church. There's a point of emphasis here that he has come to build his church, one that would belong to him. He is possessive that it belongs to him. It was there that he said that these disciples would be given great authority in preaching. That the keys, that they would be given keys to open doors and the door of faith would be open to the Gentiles. We learn later, uh, Acts chapter 14 confirms just that. He announced there to those disciples of his coming death in Jerusalem. And it was there that his earthly ministry would end. And that would mean the beginning of theirs. You think about what we read. He, he talked about all of these things. 
And there is some significance to the place they were at, to them at that time. They understood where they were. And I can only imagine when Jesus called them and they went to Caesarea Philippi and they're there at the place that was so well known as the God of Pan. The temples were there in front of them. It was there that he announced these things to them. There must be a reason that he went so far away to this place to tell them these things. Matthew chapter 16. Let's read again beginning at, let's see, let's start in verse 17. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And I've wondered, and I've tried to think about and understand, what were these disciples thinking when they heard these things? How were they accepting these things? It, Jesus just said a lot to them. Some heavy things about what Jesus, his purpose in coming, what he has come to do, and that these things were going to take place, and that he was going to be leaving them, and that their ministry was going to be starting. All of these things that he has said to them. Things that they weren't fully understanding. Not all of it, not yet. And I couldn't help but think when, when we're looking at the remnants of these temples to Pan. That Matthew 16 started taking on a little deeper meaning. What Jesus was saying to them at that point in time contrasted all that pagan worship was about. It contrasted all that the worship of Pan was about. When you walk up in this area just a little farther, you can't help but notice etched into the stone, etched into the rock in the side are these niches, as they are called. These areas carved into the stone where they would set their gods. This is where the idols would sit. And they were there. And they were right there in that area seeing all of the idols. You could see people as they were there bowing down to these gods. And we know that statues of their deity, their idols, were placed in these niches because, because there are coins minted for that city. And there are coins that show that. I mean, that's how we know a lot about history and how what buildings look like or even what some person looked like is because of coins what was minted on coins and there are coins that show in Caesarea Philippi you know these niches and the gods that sat in there and you try to imagine this you know these 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 niches you know they're all empty now their gods aren't there anymore 
just the remnants of the places where these gods once sit. But you try to imagine that there was a time, that there was a day where, where their gods were there. You know, one niche housed the sculpture of, of Echo, you know, the mountain fairy and Pan's um, you know, consort. There was another one that had, that had Hermes and, and some of the other gods prevalent of the time. You can just imagine those things. And of course, there was the temple, you know, to, to Panius. He was the most prevalent God that was there in that time. And, and, and you just try to think and imagine these things. And there are inscriptions inside these niches right here with the names of those who were influential in the time. And mainly those who had money to help fund, you know, the temple and the carving of these niches and the making of the gods. And so you would get your name inscribed inside there. And I suppose that gave some comfort to those who were involved in those things, knowing that they were so close to their God and their God could know they helped pay for that because their names were there. You can still see those. Standing in the center of pagan worship, Jesus brought his disciples there to announce his church. This is the place that Jesus brought his disciples to make these announcements. It's not too hard to imagine the religious rite, the, the religious site was, was quite impressive. And this is just an artist rendition of what the temples look like, but we know the size of the temples because the foundation is still there. And we know at least something what they look like because they're captured on coins. And so that's like the picture of old times is the coins. And, and so we know something about what those temples looked like. And you notice the temple that's built right into the cave. And that is truly the temple of Pan. And that's where the sacrifices were made. And it's a powerful statement that Jesus used this setting to make his authoritative declaration concerning his church. And you wonder a little bit about why here? It seems like there could be some places that he could have gone, that he could have taken his disciples that, that didn't have all of this going on. It would almost seem like this was a distraction to what Jesus had to offer them and what he had to say. But in essence, I think it helped to make a point of what he wanted to say. With the idols of Pan and the other gods that were all built by the hands of man displayed in such a prevalent way, the stone gods sitting in their niches of the rock, gods that did not have the power to fashion themselves or to take themselves in out of the rain or to pick themselves up if the wind blew them over, there were people there all over bowing down to these gods. It was there that Jesus took his disciples to say, I have something really important to tell you. with the spring pouring out of the cave that had accepted so many fruitless sacrifices offered by the hands of men. It was here that Jesus declared his authority given to him by the power of God. We consider the contrast of what Jesus is saying as, as he's there and there are these other gods there that, that had no power at all. And Jesus is making a reflection of the God who has given power to him to say what he's saying, to do what he is about to do to raise him from the dead. And he's trying to show the contrast of the gods that are made by the hands of men 
compared to the one true God, as Peter said, you are the living God. The contrast. Those idols of stone sitting in those niches had no power, had no life, had no breath in them. Peter could see and understand, and he made that confession that you are Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. That's the contrast that could be seen at that time and that moment. And on the confirmation of, of Peter, who said, you are, you are Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, it was there that Jesus declared again his sovereignty. His rightful place as the one with heaven's authority. That his authority came from heaven above, from God, the Christ. The Messiah of which the prophets had foretold. The one who has the rightful position and authority chose this place to announce his church. There was on one hand the rock that represented the best of man's imagination. It's interesting that Jesus brought them to this place, to this rock. The best of man's imagination and man's gods. The powerless gods of man's design contrasted with Jesus the Christ, the son of Jehovah God, the creator of all mankind. Jesus demonstrated his authority, his power, and his dominion by speaking and fulfilling the words of the prophets, confirmed it by the powers that came, the miracles that came from his hand, that proved time and again that he was the living God. And at that moment and at that place, there could be no reasonable mind that could not see the foolishness of all of man's efforts as compared to the power of Jehovah God's ultimate will to rescue man from himself. It's an incredible moment in time. Why would one choose to follow the empty words and the powerless abilities of those who touted the works of their gods. The promise of true hope, the church belonging to Christ. An incredible promise was made by the Son of God, the only one with authority and power to make such a pledge. Based on that affirmation of Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus declared, on this rock, on this rock, on what rock? What was he referring to? Scholars and theologians have grappled with that for a long time. Some have carried it far away with different ideas about what it means. Some people say Peter is the rock. What, what, what did Jesus say, mean when he said, on this rock? Was he, was he referring to the rock cliff of, of, of Penn? 
There's no power there. Remember, those gods couldn't even make themselves. Those gods were fashioned by the hands of men, by their design. They didn't have the power to bring themselves in out of the rain. They couldn't pick themselves up with the wind blew them over. All that's left today is rubble. Those gods aren't even there. There's just the remnants of what once was. On this rock, on Peter, is Peter the rock? Some assert that. But if that were the case, then that would make the church Peter's. And that doesn't work. Jesus said, my church. Peter has not brought his disciples here to make a statement about Peter. It's not about Peter. The statement is about Christ. He's the one making an announcement about what he is going to do. It's by his power. Jesus said, my church, not Peter's, not anyone else. The rock is Peter's confession of faith that Jesus is God's son. That's the rock. That's the rock. That's the strength. That's the power. A fact that would be proven by his resurrection. The basis of faith. The power of the resurrection. That Jesus is declared to be the son of God with power is the way, is the way Paul said it in Romans chapter 1. To be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1 and verse 4. The rock that Peter acknowledged is Jesus the Christ. And Jesus declared his church and the power of it. Remember, everything's being said in contrast to the imaginations of men. Jesus was foretelling what would shortly be established. And these disciples to whom he is speaking would witness its coming. It would come with power and, and they would give testimony of Christ. Jesus brought his disciples here to make a statement about himself, not about Peter or anyone else, certainly not about the pagan god Pan. It wasn't about Pan. A statement about the church that belongs to Jesus, the Son of God. We look at Colossians chapter 1. Will you go with me? Colossians chapter 1. Oh, it's 30 years or so after the resurrection of Christ. Jesus has long since ascended to heaven. The Apostle Paul and the other apostles have been preaching Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, in a text that teaches us a lot about Jesus and his preeminence, his place, and the hope that we have in him, in verse 15, Paul writes, He, Jesus being the context here, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or principalities or thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, 
who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that all things, in all things, he may have preeminence. This is what Jesus had foretold. I've come to build my church. And Paul is saying he did just that. The power of God has been demonstrated. It has been witnessed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus was a part of the creation of all things. That Jesus has power. What has Pan done for you lately? Pan had no power. But Paul is confirming and reaffirming the power of the, the creator of all things. The foundation of those temples and of those gods lie in ruins. Even those built into the rock of Mount Hermon long ago. They had no, found, no firm foundation on which to build. But God declared that Jesus is the foundation of God's building. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We begin reading at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. God declared that Jesus is the foundation of God's building. You know, it's the psalmist that had long before said, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. The 127th Psalm in, in verse 1. But now it's being affirmed to us that in fact, in fact, it is Jesus that is the foundation on which all must be built. And that there is one house that is firm. There is one house that is, that is firm, the household of God. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Now, therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints and of the household of God and have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit." Jesus being the chief cornerstone. He is the rock. And those who are in Christ, as Paul was writing this to the, to the disciples of the first century, to Ephesus and those there, he's saying, look, you are fellow citizens. You belong to this household of God. To this, it's a spiritual household to which we belong even this day. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The whole building is being joined and knit together into a holy temple in the Lord. Those temples of long ago, those temples of Pan, they're not there. They're gone. It's just the ruins that's laying there. But the church of our Lord is the church of our Lord is that which is built on the foundation that Jesus Christ laid. He is that chief cornerstone. The apostles then continued to build. 
We are the remnants of that. We are part of that, that holy temple as it's described even to us here. It is Jesus that is the rock that cannot move, cannot be destroyed. Those temples are no more. But the church of our Lord is. We become a holy temple in him, not in a rock cleft somewhere. But we are a holy temple in him. And in the clear statement of the pre-existence of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul declared the spiritual rock that overshadowed Israel was Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1. Moreover, brethren... I do not want you to be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Once again, a statement about the place and the position of Jesus, the Son of God, seen as a shadow long before about what was to come. Many events in the days of the children of Israel represent types that find their way to Christ, such as the rock at Horeb that provided them water to drink, a baptism in water that washes away the sins of men by the blood of Christ today. And so we think about these types of long ago that bring us to Christ. And here he is described as that spiritual rock. That rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. There is the strength. There is the power. What a different rock than that, that was represented by that temple of Pan, which was powerless and saved no one. Our hope, our salvation is in the rock, in Christ, the Son of God, who is a part of all things that is. He was a part of creation. The one whom God the Father sent to be the sacrifice for the sins of mankind, whom God raised from the dead. Where are those gods now? They had no power, no being long ago, and they're all but forgotten now. But Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Jesus reigns from heaven above. Jesus came to build his church into which all the saved would be added. The disciples Jesus was speaking to long ago in Caesarea Philippi, they would see it happen. They would see the establishment of that church. They would be the ones who would proclaim the will of God to anyone who was willing to listen. And in Acts chapter 2, when they preached about Jesus, using the power of prophecy, foretelling what would happen, and saying, these are the things that you now see. 
and demonstrated by the power of God miracles and speaking in tongues and the languages of all so they could know and hear the wonderful works of God. And the saved were added to the church. Verse 47 says, to what church? I've had that asked a number of times. Sometimes when studying with someone, you come to this point and you read through verse, verse 47. And I say, it says right here that the saved were added to the church. To what church are we speaking? Well, we read about one in Scripture. We read about the church that Jesus said, I have come to build my church. That's the church to which we are added. As believers who know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who repent of sins, confess the name of Christ, and are buried in baptism for the remission of sins, the saved are the ones that Jesus adds to his church. The one that he foretold long ago to his apostles, to his disciples that were there. And on this rock I will build my church. And that rock is Jesus. Are you a part of that church? You can be, even tonight. Jesus still reigns sitting at the right hand of God. He has all power. Above all principalities, dominions, and powers, Jesus still reigns. And the gods that came from the imaginations of men, they're gone. They never were. But now even their remnants are gone. Jesus still reigns. He set the cornerstone of the church. The apostles built upon it. We continue to build even today. Do you want to be a part of that church where salvation is found in Jesus Christ? If we can help you find your way to Christ, we'd like to do that even tonight. Would you come as we stand and sing?